0: So Karen and I went for a walk last night, and uh, I really love the trails in Fort Saskatchewan, just being able to go to all the places and to be able to kind of look over the garden fences at people's yards and just see all the things that they're doing. And last night, I saw garden after garden after garden with people gathered with friends and family celebrating together around television. But it did look to me as I was watching these people enjoy themselves that it looked a lot like a worship service. The faithful gathered in adoration at the altar. Now, I don't believe that this was what was happening. I don't believe that they were worshiping. But the truth is we do live in a world that is filled with idols. We're surrounded by many voices that pull us toward the sensuality of self. And it's easy to worship at the altar of consumer choice and self-expression. And this is happening so much that I see increased confusion. And it's led to an increase in disillusion. And it's happening everywhere in our society, including within the church. While this is prevalent, I don't think it's new. For example, my own experience with church is one that was filled with frustration. When I was a young person, I would look around and I would perceive in ways of of the faithful being tarnished. What I perceived to be hypocrisy drove me away from the church. And it drove me into disillusionment. This led to a season where I struggled with life. I wrestled with my faith. I wrestled with my call. And ultimately, I just could not figure out what was my purpose in life. During that time, if I'm honest, I began to worship at the altar of self. I think this is common for young people. But for me, I wasn't doing it out of a sense of rebellion. I was doing it out of a sense of confusion. Now in fairness to the church that I attended as a young person, I was a mess and it's absolutely doubtful that I was in any position to appropriately judge good character or whether someone was a hypocrite. But I think it is fair to say that my experience, my experience was not unique. Is not unique. You see, we live in a world where the God of Scripture is increasingly unknown, and confusion seems to be a common condition. And so, being a church that is committed to mission, the call of Jesus on our lives, the church that looks outward and says, We are here to seek the lonely and the lost and the people on the margins for the sake of Jesus becoming harder and harder as we move further into polarization and away from this mutual commitment toward the common good as we tear each other apart but you see there's hope ours isn't the first society where idols were everywhere and god was unknown Ours isn't the first mission where ideas and ideals directly contradicted a worldview that pointed towards Jesus. Ours isn't the first community where confusion and misunderstanding are issues of the day. Paul, on his second missionary journey, ended up in the city of Athens. And he entered the city not as a tourist, gawking at all the wonderful statues and amazing buildings. But he came with a sense of purpose, and he paid attention to the pulse of the city. And what Paul found shaped his interaction and led to a series of events that ultimately planted the first church in the city and transformed many lives. And Paul's approach, I think, remains helpful for those of us who are seeking to be a missional people. Paul's story goes like this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw. Everywhere in the city he went, everywhere in the city, sorry. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the god-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. Now it should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all nations throughout the whole earth, He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose for the nations is to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Though He is not far from any one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul is standing in Athens. And he's looking around. And he begins paying close attention to what is happening in the city. And this attentiveness causes him to experience deep emotions from within. He experiences grief that leads him into action. And his actions created opportunity to interact with people. Moments where he could share what he had to say. And these moments created space where Paul could speak. And challenge, interactions that led to individuals ultimately embracing Jesus as their Lord. And here's the pattern that I want you to notice. Paul saw, Paul felt, Paul did, Paul said, Paul challenged. Paul saw, Paul felt, Paul did, Paul said, and Paul challenged. Test afterwards, so pay close attention. We can put it this way seeing, feeling, doing, saying, challenging. Let's unpack this. Paul saw. So Paul was greatly distressed at the temples, of the temple shrine, statues, and altars. So the entire pantheon was there, the gods of Olympus, and it was spectacular gold, silver, ivory, marble all crafted by the finest craftspeople within Athenian society. These were the sculptors to beat all sculptors. It would have been awe-inspiring. But Paul looks at this and he has an emotional reaction. He chose not to turn a blind eye to the circumstances and allowed himself time to deeply understand the context and to grieve over what God grieves. And Paul felt that grief deeply. He was greatly distressed, but the emotional pain wasn't bad temper or pity or fear. It was this grief that began to well up within him. And Paul allowed his emotions to shape his reaction, and not in an angry way, but out of empathy and compassion and concern and love for people who needed to hear the hope of the gospel. And he allowed these emotions to guide him into action. And so Paul did. Paul took his negative emotions and responded with positive and constructive witness rather than reacting in despair, anger, or rejection. He chose instead to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, calling on them to turn from their idols and to embrace God. So he goes into the synagogue, and he goes to the agora, the central public space, the marketplace that we talked about last week. And he argued with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and was finally granted access to the Areopagus, literally the hill of Ares, where he spoke to the council. I can't help but admire Paul's ability to speak with equal clarity to religious people in the synagogue, to casual passers by in the marketplace, to highly sophisticated philosophers in the agora, and then ultimately to the council and the leaders of the city, the church, the shopping mall, a pub, and the university. He could speak in them all. He was clear with whomever would listen. I also can't help but admire how Paul never sees people as adversaries. It never becomes an us versus them situation. He maintains compassion, always speaking with respect, but never wavers from his deep conviction that Jesus came because of love and anything less from us is to deny Christ. He never stopped loving these people, even though they didn't get it. And even when they rejected his words. And Paul spoke. He spoke to Epicurean and and, and Stoic philosophers who reacted to his message in two ways. Some insulted him, wanting nothing to do with his crazy ideas. Others remarked that he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now remember, this was a charge that was brought against Socrates 450 years earlier that ultimately led to his death. So this was a pretty dangerous statement for him to be hearing. Paul presses on, never allowing suffering to take him off the task of what God had put towards him. And the essence of Paul's message is Jesus and the resurrection. And this message was misunderstood. You see, the philosophers thought that Jesus, or that that Paul was advocating for two new gods, the male God, Jesus, and his female consort, resurrection, or anastasis in Greek. They heard of this resurrection of Jesus and couldn't imagine that it was God who came, died, rose again so that we could be saved. It was a message they simply could not comprehend. And this misunderstanding led them to take Paul to the meeting before the entire council of the city. And he stood up with this evangelistic message, opening with a courteous remark. I notice that you're all very religious in every way. He's inviting them in. He's saying, I am proud of you. I'm impressed by you. You amaze me. You're awesome. And I want to talk about this. And it's here that Paul lays out his case. And it's worth noting both what he is saying and how he forms his argument. Paul's first point is that God is the creator of the universe and does not live in temples made by human hands. And this would have been very countercultural for everyone listening. And then comes to a second point. God is the sustainer of life. He continues to sustain life and is continuously sustaining life. He needs no sustenance or supplies from us, and any attempt to reduce, tame or domesticate God towards dependence on us, is a reversal of roles. He comes to his third point. God is the ruler of the nations. All history and geography for every nation on earth are ultimately under God's control and serve His purpose. His fourth point. God is the father of human beings. And because we are his offspring, to think of him as gold or silver or stone or something we have created is both inconsistent and ultimately ridiculous. Now note how he did this. Scripture tells us he quoted their poets. And their poets were referring to Zeus as father. But he wasn't afraid to acknowledge and to bring in where their theology had become misguided, but show them that they were on the right idea. It had just become a little bit misdirected. He wasn't afraid of how God had already revealed himself to these people. He wasn't afraid to engage with their thinkers and help draw them in from their perspective. And his final point, God is the judge of the world. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now, with the certainty of the coming judgment, God has acted. See, Paul wants clarity here. God will judge the world. It will be righteous, and it will be definite. The identity of the judge has already been disclosed, and this is the challenge the people that were listening to Paul. And so Paul challenged. Paul proclaimed God as creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and judge. He emphasized the greatness of God, the one we owe everything to, and to whom we will one day give an account. Paul is challenging all human beings. And he's saying you already know some of this through what God has revealed to you through general revelation, but through your ignorance and idolatry, which is inexcusable, he's calling you to repent, to turn to the resurrected one before it's too late. And that call exists for us today. So let's live this story. So much can be taken from Paul's account for us as the church. Seeing, feeling, doing, saying, challenging. Can you repeat those five? Seeing, feeling, doing, saying, challenging. Let's do it again. Seeing, feeling, doing, saying, challenging. We can see. The call to mission is the call to see and be open to what is happening, to be conscious of the actions and places that grieve God that are around us. But it doesn't begin by looking outward. It begins by looking inward, by taking an account of our own life. My own journey back to faith didn't begin until I took a hard look at me. And I saw my own desperate need for grace. It was when I saw that I needed Jesus and that my issues with the church and my crisis of faith were rooted in my own idolatry. We sometimes call this deconstruction. And God graciously brought me to a place of reconstruction. And Once I had become consciously aware of these idols in my life and how they were receiving my worship, I began to feel the same grief, and my life was changed forever. But idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated forms, and an idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Ideas and ideologies can become an idol. Fame, wealth, relationships, and power can be idols. Even church and Christian service can become an idol. Anywhere we have a false idea of God, we are at risk of idolatry. And we don't need to be deconstructing, to be tearing at the fabric of our own faith. And so we can feel. When we see, we will begin to feel what God feels. And mission is about allowing these feelings to move us, grieve us, and guide us into action. And this is God-guided action, grace-filled action, a holy discontent that leads us out of our malaise and into action. It was feelings that guided me back to Jesus. It was the feelings of others that loved me back to God. It was feelings that led me into ministry. It is feelings that brought me to Fort Saskatchewan. God uses our feelings to shape our call and guide our action. And we can do. We do because we have to. But we don't just do anything. Action for action's sake rarely leads to success. We need to contextualize. We need to understand our community, to know the place, to understand the space, to know ourselves, and to work from where we are with what we have. Paul did what he could. He went to the synagogue, he went to the market, and this led him to the council. Often our actions lead to further opportunities, so don't worry about what you can't do, and start with what you can do. For me, my initial return to the church led me into a Sunday school classroom. God used a ragged group of grade five boys to shape me in significant ways. This led to seminary, then to Africa, then South America, Asia, and now to Fort Saskatchewan. It just keeps getting better and better. See, God uses our experiences and He calls us into doing. But He doesn't just call us to be active because we need to share. And so we can say, in our doing, we speak but we don't just talk. We share the life of Jesus. And like Paul, we establish the fact of God. There is a great debate in mission. Some insist that we should only preach the gospel, while others feel we should engage in action to care for the poor, to bring justice, to love our neighbor through good deeds. I say we can do both, word and deed, do and say Latin American theologians call this integral mission. I call it good practice. You see, many people reject the gospel not because they think it to be false, but because they think it to be trivial. People are looking for something that makes sense, a worldview that explains their experiences. And like Paul, we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the entire doctrine of God. It has to be bigger. It can't just be Jesus loves you. It has to be something that connects to the whole truth of Scripture. We cannot preach the cross without creation or salvation without judgment. The world needs a bigger gospel, the full gospel, the whole Bible, what Paul called later the whole purpose of God. And so we can challenge but first, we must allow ourselves to be challenged. We need to be reminded that we too need grace, that we too need forgiveness, that we were once lost but are now found and are in no position to be prideful about what we possess. Only then can we challenge others. And so we challenge them, but not in anger or a sense of superiority, but with grace and love, we share the whole purpose of God in word and deed. It was this whole purpose of God that convinced me that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That giving my life over to Him was not a waste of my time. But He asked for all of me, not just a couple of hours on Sunday morning. This is costly. It's a full, full ask of God. And I want to confess to you today, I don't always give them all of me. In truth, sometimes I don't and I need to be called back. Perhaps this is the challenge for all of us today. You see, we still struggle with idols that steal from God. Places, people, ideas, and items that possess way too much of our loves and steal us away from our mission, causing us to miss what God wants us to see. And so we remain silent in a world that needs us to speak. And I think the major reason for this is we don't speak like Paul spoke because we don't feel like Paul felt. And if we don't speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul, It's because we don't see like Paul. So church, what is God wanting us to see? What is grieving Him in Fort Saskatchewan, in Sherwood Park, or in Edmonton that will grieve us once we notice? Because we can see, and we can feel, and we can do, and we can say, and we can be challenged as much as we can challenge others. We can be a missional church. And that is my prayer for us this morning. I began by talking about idols. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we are all prone to worship the created over the creator. Being a Christian doesn't give us immunity. But I want to leave you with hope. Jesus has defeated the powers. His grace is sufficient. And he is for us. He is for all of us. Jesus loves Fort Saskatchewan. He loves Sherwood Park. He loves Edmonton, all people, and he wants to bring freedom. So let's start there. Let's see. Let's feel. Let's do. Let's say. And let's challenge, allowing ourselves to be challenged, allowing ourselves to challenge others, but always in the name of love. One more time. See, feel, do, say, challenge. Lord, thank you for the example of Paul. Lord, for the mission that you have given us and the ways you've called us to participate with you in this great, great program that you have this project that you started on day one with creation that will culminate in our being in your presence before the throne. Lord, in this time where we're called to act, help us to see. Lord, help us to see what grieves you. Build in us a deep compassion, a holy discontent, a desire to love so much that we will abandon everything for the case and cause of Christ. Lord, help us to feel, break our hearts for those things that are breaking yours. Make us so uncomfortable, Lord, that we can't help but act. And Lord, give us us something to do. Lord, help us to see what we can do and open up opportunities in that faithful first step into places that we can share you Lord, help us to be clear as we share, never in anger, never with pride, but with love and grace, help us to say and speak your name. And Lord, help us to challenge, help us to be challenged so that we look at our own lives and expel the idols that are so prone to grab hold of us. We're not immune to the sensuality of self. Lord, this morning I pray that we would increasingly become a missional church. And Lord, for the ways you're already doing this in our midst, the ways you've been doing it in this space and place, for 40 years we give you glory. Help us to be responsive to your needs in this place at this time. Lord, as we lift up our praise to you this morning, as we sing out to you, quicken our hearts, light a fire in our bellies. Give us a sense of your call on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.